1: Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki.
0: I'm Dale Spangler. And this week's guest is mental performance coach, Dr. Tim Laskis. Moto America is the official sponsor of Pit Pass Moto. Moto America is the home of AMA Superbike and North America's premier motorcycle road racing series. With 10 rounds and 20 races of the best motorcycle road racing on two wheels, Moto America features seven classes of motorcycle road racing, Superbike, Supersport, Junior Cup, Stock 1000, Twins Cup, King of the Baggers, and Mini Cup racing. Moto America has reinvigorated motorcycle road racing in North America, and one of its primary goals is to send its riders to the top level international championships of MotoGP and World Superbike. Moto America is not only proud to be stewards of the sports rich heritage, but also the catalyst and guiding force for its future. Don't miss a minute of action, practice qualifying races and video on demand with Moto America Live Plus streaming. Tickets, info and a complete schedule can be found at MotoAmerica.com.
1: This week's race recap, we've got the 80th running of the Daytona Classic event, which included, of course, the Daytona 200 also included this year the King of the Baggers, the Twins Cup event, and also the Roland Sands Super Hooligans. While wow, the racing on the track and the 200 came down to the final lap, the final corner, and Brandon Posh is now a two-time owner of the Rolex, winning by .007 tenths of a second and pulling a double draft on uh, Cam Peterson and Sheridan Marias in the final corner, leading to the checkered flags. Man, it was one of the really great events to see in Now Brandon's in uh, close company with uh, one of only three riders to ever win the Daytona 200 back-to-back on different brands. He did it on Yamaha last year and Triumph this year, and Dick Mann did it in 1970 on a Honda, 1971 on a BMW, and then Danny Aslick, who was actually in the race this weekend, did it back in 2014 on a Triumph and then won it a year later on a Suzuki.
0: Yeah, Brandon Posh, you can't say enough about this kid. 20 years old. I mean, he definitely seems to have a bright future ahead of him. But he just seemed to play his cards just perfectly. He never seemed to drop out of the top five throughout the entire race. And just, you know, coming into the last three laps, he was in fourth place. Was able to make the, the double draft pass, as you mentioned, Dave. And wow, what a, what a just kind of veteran move to just sit back there patiently waiting and uh, take the win for a second time. Pretty impressive.
1: If we think back to last year Brandon pulled the same move to win the race so he's he's Mr. Clutch and uh, he's got the two Rolexes to uh, to show it so uh, good on him for uh, pulling off the win this weekend.
0: Yeah, I noticed it seemed like the riders you know reading some of the rider interviews after the race it just seemed like there was a lot of these riders were just having so much fun with this with this race the Daytona 200. A lot of them described it as you know lots of back and forth passing more like a sprint race than a than an endurance race. But a 57-lap sprint race, wow, unreal!
1: and to come down to that narrow of a margin, it really came down to pit stops because Brandon pitted near the last, near the end of the race, near the last lap, and they chose to just take on fuel and not tires. And I sound like I'm talking about NASCAR, but I'm not. It paid off for him because he's only in the pits for you know about half the time he normally would be, and got into the mix and uh, pulled it off. Man, it was a great win.
0: How about the king of the baggers though? Two races, two different winners. Tyler O'Hara, who was one of our recent guests, was able to pull off race one with another draft move. And then in race two, unbelievably, Jeremy McWilliams, veteran racer, pretty much has raced about any type of road racing you can think of, pulls a draft move on Tyler O'Hara to take the win in race two. Unbelievable racing action.
1: How about that strong showing for Indian? They sweep the podium in race two. Which was pretty amazing. They were just on the gas. And Tyler, you know, I think he, he wishes he could do last season over again. And he showed it out there on the racetrack. He went out and won the King of the Baggers Challenge, which was a three lap dash for cash, a $5,000 prize. He went out and just dominated and beat the Wyman Brothers in that event.
0: It seemed like the HD guys struggled a little bit, though, over the the two races. Kyle Wyman ended up going, falling down the, the results uh, page, having a rough race two, his brother Travis finishing fifth but I think even like James Rispoli had some issues in race one with some breaks and so Harley had a little bit of a struggle there but uh, like you said the Indian was was on top of it they seem to have that top speed for sure This week's Industry Spotlight focuses on the recent announcement that Honda Powersports has released the first officially licensed CRF E2 youth-focused electric dirt bike in a new model collaboration between American Honda and Greenger power Powersports. Representing a practical but exciting doorway to the world of Powersports, the CRF E2 brings the motorcycling experience to a new pool of customers whose lives are already increasingly powered by electricity. As a fun training tool for young new riders the CRF E2 eliminates the need to use a clutch or gear shift lever and has a reasonably priced step-up to real dirt bikes. It's a quiet, environmentally responsible form of powered recreation that can be ridden in more places than traditional mini dirt bikes. The CRF E2, manufactured by Greenger Power Sports, will be available exclusively through American Honda's nationwide network of participating power sports dealerships.
1: We'd like to welcome back to Pit Pass Moto, Dr. Tim Laskus, PhD, owner of the Coach Wherever program, and really excited to talk to you, Tim, for sure, and uh, welcome back to the show, man.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure, and yeah, I'm excited to talk with you today.
1: We want to learn about your program and the things that you've done with Club MX to kind of refresh our our, uh, audience so they understand kind of what, uh, what you're doing for those guys down there.
2: Okay. I've been with Club MX since about 2014, and um, that's when I started as the mental performance coach there, working with the amateurs as well as some of the top pro guys that they have um, that are training and getting ready either for you know outdoors or supercross or you know, wherever they're at. People training there year-round, so it's whether it's the summer and, and the heat here in the south and you know, 90 or 100% humidity, or whether it's in the middle, middle of winter, but yet we're not like Minnesota where you know we get a lot of extreme cold air and snow. So um, just might be a little bit chilly out. But um, that's what I've been doing with clubs since 2014, and then I also train coaches on the side, uh, just because I found that there's not enough me to, to go around. And so when you know I have people who are wanting to work with me, I may have to to turn them away just because of time. And so I thought, wow, there has to be a solution this, to this. So I started Coach Wherever, where I teach people how to become a mental performance coach, and they can take those skills and go out and work with amateurs or pros in their area.
1: Interesting. And I'm kind of curious, you know, how, how does somebody get into that? And what's what's the selection process? Or I guess, how do you determine if somebody is able to, to be qualified and, and go down that path?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And basically, they have to have a love for the sport. They have to be motivated to be able to learn. It's just like someone who is going through maybe a master's program in psychology, or maybe they're going to get a doctorate to become a psychologist. You know, they have to have that passion and that interest and in wanting to learn the skills to be able to help other people. Now, there is no requirement that you have to have been a, a pro rider, you know, or that you've done certain things within the amateur world of racing or whatnot. I teach them all the skills that they need to know in order to help riders wherever they're at. It's it's just like maybe your your heart surgeon. He or she doesn't have to have a heart attack to be able to do surgery on people who have heart conditions, or or you know a physician that may work with people with diabetes. You know they don't have to have diabetes. So many of our coaches do not. They have a limited uh, you know racing background. Uh, most of them, I would say, the majority of them have done some type of racing, or maybe even currently racing. Some of them are riding coaches and they want this extra skill set to be able to help them stand out and work with riders because what they see is that they're teaching them some of the techniques and skills on the bike and then they just may not know how to reach that rider for whatever reason. They're not getting it. So be able to understand the human element and every rider is different and everyone communicates differently. They like to be communicated with in a different way. and so. I give them that background to be able to understand riders on the mental level and to be able to help them with a variety of things, whether it's working with riders while they're in training and developing good habits or race situation strategies that they're really struggling with.
0: So on that subject of, you know, as a whole, mental the mental aspect of racing. I'm curious to know, like, why Why do you think this is such a, a recent development for racers to focus on? I mean, me, kind of like, I grew up racing in the late 80s and 90s. Yes, I'm dating myself. But we didn't really have that. that we didn't think about that. You know, we focused on the physical side, but we didn't, we didn't really think about the mental aspect of racing. Like, why do you think that's? it's taken so long? And tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I agree. I also grew up racing you know, amateur motocross in, in the 80s here in the, in the Southeast, and it was all about just toughness. You tough it out and, and you didn't complain and you didn't whine and you just went out and did it and, and you just tried to figure it out. It's kind of that, that old school mentality. And I think things really started to change because of more research. Um, there's been more societal acceptance of psychology and mental health within, you know, I would say around the world, even within the, the military, there is more acceptance to getting mental health treatment. Post, you know, going off to combat, they understand that PTSD and and depression and a variety of other mental health issues needs treatment by a professional. And the military has done a really good job of putting the education out there and say it's it's not just about being strong, but being strong, it means that you also ask for for help. So I think in combination of, of research that's out there, society has been more accepting to it. And it's trickled down into motocross. Now, motocross is probably one of the, the later stage sports. Or I wouldn't say last sport, but one of the later stage sports to really accept mental performance training. But it's it's been in, say, uh, the, the Olympics, professional baseball, football, basketball. It's been in a lot of other professional sports for, for many, many years. So it's just it's relatively new. and I think what's also kind of helped increase the popularity is that you've heard some of the top pro writers talk about having their mental performance coach assist them. And you know I love listening to podcasts and I've heard it in, and they've even seen it in print where some of the top guys are talking about getting this help to help them get a you know either fix of something that's happening or, or get a little bit of an advantage on the rest of of the pack. And what I've seen is once you get to that top level, there, you know, a lot of guys have the great equipment. A lot of them are in great shape. A lot of them have the skills to be able to do what they need to to be at the top, but they're missing something. And what really separates the Tomacs and Andersons and some of the other top riders from the the guys in the back is that mental edge. and, And they're able... To concentrate, they're able to keep that focus and not get intimidated, and just be razor sharp on their mental ability and being able to go out weekend and week out and deal with not only the physical side of, of racing but that mental side that's also important. And a lot of guys have just been kind of left to themselves to figure it out. But now they're now they're seeing that hey, there's something to this, and once they do jump in and they experience what it's like to work with a mental performance coach, they've picked up some new tools, then they really become firm believers and they just take off.
0: I really like what you said there about, you know, strong equals asking for help. I, I really think that's just such a great statement because it's kind of flipping the script in a way because like you said, I, I kind of grew up where you, you just, you just had to be tough, you know, just, just be tough, you know? And so in this case, being strong is asking for help. I think that's a really cool statement.
2: You think about the army slogan, you're army strong. And a lot of people, you know, many years ago thought about, well, that's physical strength and I need to be able to endure and deal with pain and, and, and suffer and just get through it. And if I don't make it, then, then I'm weak or if I ask for help, I'm weak. And so that, yeah, they really had to change that mindset and say, no, being, being strong means you ask for help. And so that it really has turned a corner, redefining what it means to be strong.
1: And as we kind of peel this away it it really opens up a lot of questions in my mind and and probably I have a kind of a two part question for you which is what's the ideal age or maturity level that's best to begin with working with a rider and then how does that how do you separate that from managing the distractions of a racer's life whether it's their family or school or personal lives how does that bleed into what you're trying to do is is coach them and, and teach them how to focus on the racing aspect and manage that. So how do you keep those separate? Those are two
2: great questions, and I'll tackle the first with, you know, what is the ideal age? I've worked with riders who are early teens, well, actually younger than that, not even uh, teenagers yet, all the way up to riders who are ready to retire in their 30s. And I would say there's not a specific ideal age but there definitely is an ideal rider who accepts the, the mental health coach and being able to utilize some of those skills. If a rider comes to a mental health coach because they're being pushed by family or maybe a team or, or something, and they don't really believe in the process, then it really is not going to be effective. So regardless of what age, if, if they're you know 14 or, or 40, if other people are really pushing them to get that mental performance coaching for whatever reason and they're just not accepting of it then it doesn't really matter how much you work with them they're always just going to just do their own thing kind of you know yes okay I'll do this I'll do that and then they never really follow up so i would say that's more important than than age i've had some young riders who have been very very successful and i think it gives them a huge advantage over other riders you know especially maybe in that in that really competitive 85cc class where you know, doing well means hey, that that could lead you to to the next level and, and being recognized by teams who are looking, you know, younger and younger. And I see it with with club riders as well. They they train for such a long time and then they go to big events, whether it's Minios or, or Loretta's. They understand it's a big event and they maybe get really intimidated. They're super great at, at practicing, and you've even heard maybe some of the top pro guys who are, aren't doing as well as people expected them to do they're not performing at that level but they see them at the practice track they're like oh my goodness they're super fast and i know they're going to win this year they're going to be on the podium and they don't same thing with some of these really good amateur riders who are great at at the training facility you know they're kind of the top of the group that they train with and then they get to a big event and there's a variety of reasons that come into play but they just don't end up doing what they're capable of doing they're not taking practice to the race. Some of these guys who are really into it have been able to turn that around and where they struggled at big events. They were great at local races, great and fast when they were practicing, but they couldn't make that transition and, and pull it into a big event and then working with me to give them some of these skills that can help them calm down, increase their focus, and just help them be able to work that big event to their advantage and not let their mind, our minds are either gonna work for us or they're gonna work against us. And we've probably all been in situations where we've been nervous or anxious and we have that little voice inside of our head that says, "Uh uh-oh, what are you doing? You can't do this. Uh Uh-oh, what if you crash? What if you don't do well? Just kind of that negativity that runs in situations that maybe we're just feeling not as, as good about ourselves and we're not as confident. And then that just pulls us down. So before we even line up, we've already defeated ourselves for the day.
0: Well, it sure seems like you have one of these jobs, Doctor Tim, that's extremely difficult but extremely rewarding. So, but what I'm curious about though is, are, do you have some clients that come to mind that you've worked with that you've seen kind of grow up and work their way into the pro ranks, or or even a racer that you've seen like a huge huge transformation in their racing as a result of you working with them?
2: Yeah, there's a couple of guys now that are in the 250 and 450 class and uh, that are doing very well, that are in the top that all of you would know. One, one thing that I do um, when I work with writers is I, I bring my, my training from the, the clinical psychology field and, and as it relates to confidentiality. And I think this is a step that's important that a lot of people miss is that when I work with writers, I, I let them know that everything that they say to me is just between us. You know, it's almost like an attorney and a client privilege, so so to speak. And I don't reveal their names and I don't reveal anything, you know, about what we talk about. Because when you're especially working with the top guys, the amateur guys, they don't care so much, but somebody who's maybe already a top pro writer, they have a really small pool of people that they really trust with <laughs> a lot of information just because of the media and the way that that everything you know works in the world today. But yeah, there are people that I've been able to watch that were amateurs who've grown and, and, and reached their goals. And it's super exciting and rewarding to be able to see them, you know, watch watch it on TV as as they're racing, you know, either the Supercross or the outdoors and see them doing well. And, and you know, it's it really is very, very rewarding for sure.
1: Kind of curious about yourself, uh, Dr. Tim. I know uh, when we talked to you last, you had kind of stepped away from riding yourself, but uh, your young son Landon was uh, picking up uh, a dirt bike and getting into the sport. And I know you've got another son. Is that uh, in your future? Is it to get back on the dirt bike and do some riding?
2: Well, that's funny you said. Well,
1: yeah, I I have, uh,
2: Landon is my eight-year-old and and Carson is, is two and a half. Landon is still riding 50s and Carson has a Stasic. We have just under seven acres where we live here in South Carolina. And so I built kind of a little turn track and I'm out there with them almost every day. They just want to ride. They love riding. None of, you know, Landon hasn't raced yet. He still just enjoys riding. Me being out there and just kind of coaching them along, I felt like wasn't enough. So I went and I bought a Honda 110. That was the funnest thing. I think this is probably my step to getting back into a bigger bike and maybe getting a 450. That little pit bike is the funnest thing that I've bought in a long time. And it's amazing how it's really helped their riding where I'll get behind them and I'll push them and I'll go inside and outside. And I think it's really helped make them faster and really understand what I've been telling them and trying to train them. And it's super fun for me. So if there are any dads out there that is thinking about getting a, a pit bike and a 110, go for it. It, it is great. I mean, it, it's it's brought a lot of fun to not only me, but you know the, the kids are always saying, dad, get your bike out, get your bike out. It's great. So that's my step, getting back into a big bike.
1: That's awesome. As long as you're riding, that's the important thing. And I'm 100% with you. I've got a 110 in the garage too. And my kids grew up riding uh, mini bikes and did the same thing. And those are great memories. I'm glad you're building those same memories too. Just as we wrap up here, uh, Dr. Tim, I just wanted to uh, ask you, where's the best place to look for you and find you on the web or social media so that uh, our uh, listeners can find you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, CoachWherever.com. Or they can send an email at Timlaskis at gmail.com is is probably the best. That one I check the most. Those are the two places. I I don't spend a lot of time on on Facebook or other social media. I just don't have the time. I probably should increase uh, my presence on social media. But um, basically, those are the two places that they can find me.
1: We really appreciate you taking time to spend with us and explain your program. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you in the future, man.
2: Absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to our guests for being with us today and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review us. We really appreciate it. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog and our brand new store where you can get your PitPass swag.
0: This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Blair helverson Producer Leah Longbrake and audio engineers Sean Rule Hoffman and Eric Colt now.
1: I'm Dale Spangler. And I'm Dave Sulecki. See you next week on Bit Pass Moto.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.